All right, hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Friends Podcast, where people who are in active recovery from addiction share their unique experience in the hope that listeners still in active addiction can identify with their stories and possibly find hope for their own recovery. We are not affiliated or do we speak for any 12-step programs or any other addiction or recovery-based entity. The words spoken here reflect the experience of our guests and not the opinion of their chosen path to recovery. All right. What do you think about that, Frank? I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I don't want to ruin anything for anybody else. You know, my path's my path, and other people's paths are their paths. That's you right. Know? So. Yeah, I tell you what, whenever. Well, if, so first off, let me introduce the. Uh, <laughs> Our, our speaker today. Our speaker today is going to be Frank. And um, Frank is um, a man who I admire. Uh, and that's not me just blowing smoke. Um, I've seen, um, you know, you see people, you hear people uh, say a lot of things, and then you see people uh, actually live out those things. And Frank, you're one of those people to me. And uh, I won't lie. The first time I <laughs> the first time I saw you or heard you speak, I, I did, probably didn't think that. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I, I, think, I think the first time I met you, or I, not, not even met you, I, I, you, you told your story at Solutions like in 2013 or something. Wow. All right. And um, I know you're so, you were charismatic, you know, like you are. Yeah. And, and so, like, it, I was, like, pr I was pretty fresh, probably maybe a year sober, or I might, it might have even been before that, and uh, I was skeptical of anybody. So anybody who had, like, who, f who looked like they were, like, knew what they were talking about or, or said something with confidence like that, I, I was skeptical of it, probably because I was, like, envious of it. Yeah, probably so. so. I yeah. Was, I, I've, been, I've been one of them guys that's been pretty happy since I've got here, so... And I've been accused over the years of being maybe a little too happy at one time. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> it's just one of those things. Uh, but uh, you're not the first person that told me that. So, you know, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Um, but, like I said, since then, gotten to know you and I've realized that that joy that you carry and that charisma that you carry is genuine and it's not put on. Yeah, it's a pretty cool, you know. Um, it, it wasn't like that before I got sober. Mm. You know, I mean, before I got sober, man, it was, it was really bad. You know, it was really, really bad. Um, you know, drugs and alcohol took me to a place that was just, it was a terrible, terrible, dark, just terrible place, yeah. you know. And, and just being able to get out of that, man, cause to celebrate you know yeah so you know that's what it's all, all about you know and you certainly carry yourself like you're celebrating <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah and i and, and i and, and i think what, what what has solidified my my high opinion of you is watching you uh carry the way you've carried yourself through your recent struggle so maybe uh, maybe later on you can get into that but uh why don't you sure. 
maybe uh, talk about what it was like and uh, we can start from there. Sure. So what's really cool is, is that I'm sitting in Andy's place right now <clears throat> down in what they call the bywater in New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> well, they call it the bywater now. Look, I'm a, just real quick. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to start that. Cool. So it's counting up, and I'll just show it to you from yeah. time to time. And, cool. and if you don't mind, speak, speak a little into Okay. Them. And um, so it's called the bywater today, but 40 years ago when I grew up, it was called the Ninth Ward. <laughs> and, and, and I actually grew up. Uh, you know, five bro five blocks from this place down in between Montague and Cluett on Rampart Street, which was, you know, it was a different world back then. But uh, nevertheless, you know, I grew up down in New Orleans in the city. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I can't say that I really had that bad of a childhood because I, I don't think I did. You know, back then it was just normal. I mean, we had eight kids. You know, we lived in a three-bedroom shotgun house in the Ninth Ward, right? <laughs> we moved around a lot, right? And, um, you know, growing up, <clears throat> my mother was an alcoholic, and, and you know, that, that threw a different dynamic in my household as opposed to my friends' households. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, when you got a mom that drinks too much, a lot, uh, it, was, it, was, it just made things different, you know? But... My mother did love her kids. She was very involved in our lives, you know, with the school. She was a Cub Scout master. She was the CYO um, volleyball coach and, and baseball coach. So she was, she was involved. Um, she just liked to drink, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and we always had a bunch of kids at our house. And, uh, you know, I, I saw what alcohol did to a family. Um, I had a brother when I was 13 years old, July 4th of 1980 that died from this disease. It took his life. So I saw what it did to, to people, you know, up close. How old was your brother? My brother was uh, 19 years old when wow. he died. And um, my brother Douglas. And, and, you know, I wasn't one of these people that started drinking when he was eight, nine years old. That's just not my story. I mean, I was a pretty good kid, you know. I, you know, I, I, had, I had issues growing up, just like every kid, you know, feeling insecure and not enough and all that. You know, I mean, I think every kid goes through that. Mm. You know, that didn't make me an alcoholic. Um, <clears throat> what I did with it, uh, you know, I think in those days, you know, there wasn't a lot of what goes on now. And I have two girls and I have two daughters and I have two children. And both of my daughters know that I love them. Mm -hmm. And I tell my daughters that I love them a lot. Back then, they didn't do that. Wow. I mean, it's just, you know, back in, in the 70s, it's just not the way they dealt with kids. <laughs> it just wasn't, you know. Um, I mean, they beat your ass, I can tell you that, you know, and the neighbors and the yeah. teachers. And that's just the way it was back then. But nevertheless, you know, I, I didn't start drinking until I was like 17, 18 years old. And I started drinking because of peer pressure. Mm. You know, I wanted to hang out with the chicks. And you, and did you, had, when you had seen your brother go through and die from alcoholism, did that like in your mind say, okay, I'm not going to go that oh, route? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, dude. Even my mom. I mean, there was a lot of very embarrassing times as a child. Okay, so back then, the schools, the Catholic schools in New Orleans used to have fairs. And, and that's how they generated a lot of their revenue yeah. through the fairs. Bazaars? Uh, bazaars, fairs, you know, at rides and stuff. Well, my yeah. mom was involved with that. 
And my mom used to get companies to donate different things to the fair. I used to go to St. Peter and Paul School right here over at Legion Field in St. Claude, mm. you know. And uh, I remember my mom being really, really drunk, dude, right, at one of the fairs, right? I mean, like, like, like shit-faced drunk, right? And, and... And, you know, it was so embarrassing as a kid. You know, mm -hmm. your friend's there and your mom's sitting there drunk. And, you know, I, I, it, it really just turned me off. But nevertheless, you know, when I was 17 years old and I started to drink as a result of peer pressure, and, of course, that one night <clears throat> I got enough alcohol down my throat to where I was able to feel the effect yeah. produced by alcohol like they talk about in the big book. And it was a game changer for me. I mean, just, just, it, it just, it changed my life, man, because it did so much for me. Yeah. You know, like Bill W. talks about, I had arrived. I mean, I had arrived. It, I mean, the fear was erased. I mean, the insecurity, everything, it just went away, you know? And uh, so I, I started doing that a lot, you know? And in the beginning, it was a lot of fun. You know, I remember I started bartending at Pat O'Brien's in New Orleans. I mean... At, that, you, at 17? At eight, seven, eight, 17 years old, 17 and a half <laughs> years old, right? I mean, people would kill for that, right? And here I am. I'm a kid growing up in New Orleans, and I start bartending at Pat O'Brien's, right? Oh, wow. I'm living at home. I'm making all the money in the world. I've got the girls. I've got the money. i got the booze. I mean, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Why would I want to do anything else, right? And that back then, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, but I tell people, if alcohol doesn't do to you what it does to you in the beginning, it, it, you never stick around and let it do to you what it does in the end. Yeah. Because in the end, it wasn't fun. Yeah. I mean, Jan Jan early January of 2005, brother, fun was nowhere around. Wow. I mean, you know, you sit in the hotel contemplating suicide. But nevertheless, you know, I mean, I started bartending. And, you know, you start bartending at Pat O'Brien's. And then nine years later, I'm working at a dive, right? Because, of course, my <laughs> alcoholism. Glitz and glam. To, it's like oh, God. Studios, Studio 54. To, <laughs> oh, yeah. Dude, I'm working 11 to 7, right? I'm, I'm homeless. Um, and again, I, you know, I grew up with a family that loved me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a mom and dad. I, I had brothers and sisters that loved me. But nevertheless, that's where alcohol took me. Nine years later. Nine years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm working at a place called The Stage Door. And I am just completely just out of control. I'm very undernourished. I look like death. But if you'd have asked me... I'm doing great. Yeah. What were you staying at around this time? Well, you know, back then, <clears throat> I knew a lot of people in the French quarters. You know, I knew I knew some people that worked at the dungeon. I knew some people that worked at Molly's. You know, I, I knew people that worked all over the French quarters, and we kind of looked after each other. You know, and and they kind of looked after me. You know, and every once in a while, I'd mess up really, really bad. You know, and kind of exile myself from them for a little while, and then kind of get back in, but. You know, you couch jump. Yeah. You know, you couch jump. You know, I remember a couple of times my my brothers and sisters, you know, my sisters would come down to the French Quarter and they would try to come and get me to leave. You know, it's crazy. I, I, I tell some friends of mine, there was a couple of years of my life that I did not leave the French Quarters. 
Like straight up. Like the nine block radius of the French, like, 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 like Decatur, Rampart, Canal, and Esplanade. I was in there. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I was in there. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of dark times, man. You know, it really was some really, really dark times. And, and what's really crazy is as bad as it got, and everybody else told me that I should quit drinking and address some other outside issues. You know, I, um, I don't know why. I guess the denial, I was in such denial that I, I just, I really never did look at it. Yeah. You know, and, and so, so nine years later, <clears throat> I'm bartending. I'm, uh, my mother had worked for the Catholic Church right outside the French Quarter, the church called Annunciation. So a young lady came, and there was a bunch of people that used to come through the French Quarters, and, you know, they, they, they just came through the French Quarters and find them a job, people from all over the United States, and it's just the way it was back then, you know. It was a lot, it was a lot freer back then, you know, not as many diseases, not as many crazy drugs, and it was, I don't know, everybody was kind of just having fun. So people would come through the French quarters. I met this chick. She was from California. She had this little BMW, didn't have any place to park it. And uh, I told her I would ask the, the, the bishop, right because it was right outside the French quarters, if she could park a car there. So my mom asked the bishop, and yeah, she said, okay. So the girl parked a car there. And we were friends. We didn't date or anything, nothing sexual or anything. We were just friends. So... Uh, <clears throat> one night I decided that I was going to borrow her car. I was going to go to a party. And uh, I broke in a rectory, got her keys, and I borrowed her car. And and I uh, I was driving down Rampart Street, and, and I took a left and ran through a red light, and this car just pelayed her car, dude, and smashed her car. Oh, right? man. <laughs> so, so here I am. I'm at the scene of this accident. I don't have a driver's license. Well, I have a driver's license, but it's not valid because a year later I had gotten a DWI and, of course, was very irresponsible with that whole situation. And, um, and, uh, and so I don't have a driver's license, so the police get to the scene. So what I do is I lie to the police and I tell them I'm someone else, <laughs> right? Because that's what I'm good at. I'm good at lying. So... The police let me leave the scene of the accident, actually wrote me tickets in someone else's name. A tow truck driver comes by because, of course, he sees this car smashed. (laughs) So I kind of put him together and he tows the car back to the church. Right. So I go to work that night. I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt no, you too good. much. Right. So you, the, you, all you did was tell the cop you were somebody else. And he wrote me a And t- you were like, I don't have my ID? Don't have my ID. And, and, and I had an insurance card some kind of way, I believe, with that person's name on it. Uh, so thank so God. somebody you knew. Yeah, it was somebody I knew. <laughs> Actually, he was a bartender over at Molly's at the Market, dude. Because <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. That night, I go to work at 11 o'clock that night, and I realize that night that heat's going to be coming. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> going to be some consequences, right? So the next morning, um, when I leave work at 7 o'clock, my best thinking says to rob the bar and leave town, 
Yeah. Well, it sounds like probably something that would cross my mind as well. Yeah. In that so, so, so that's what I did, right? I go to the bus station and I buy a bus ticket to go see a friend in Colorado. Um, I really didn't get very much money out of that job of, of robbing the bar. I mean, it was only a couple hundred dollars. But at the time, it was a means to get me out of a situation, right? And that's, that's pretty much how I lived. So, you know, I was out of town for a couple of weeks. Of course, you know, what do you do when you run out of money and you're out of town? You call mom, you know. So what do I do is I call mom. And I, I, I call mom, my mom, and my sister sends me enough money to, to get me a ticket back home. Was that the first time you had contacted them since the, the whole scenario? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. So I'll tell you about this, this, this car being towed back to the church a little later. And um, so, so I come back home, and of course I stay out the French quarters because there's heat in the French <laughs> quarters, right? So I'm not going to the French quarters. My mom works for the Catholic Church. I get a job at the Catholic Church, working at this thrift store, living with my mom. I'm about 30 years, 28 years old at the time. And uh, my mom says, you know, please go to church, blah, 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 the whole God and church thing. And, you know, I'm kind of not really feeling that. But yet I have nothing else. So, you know, I, I kind of start going to church. So I meet this woman at church, right? Of course, you know, there's, there's a woman for every one of us. And I meet this woman and I figured, hell, get married. You know, getting married might be the answer. So I asked this poor soul to marry me. She marries me, and um, we move in together. We get married. We move in together on the West Bank, and um, I got in a job. Somebody always told me that, Frank, you are a bond salesman, dude. You can sell ice to an Eskimo. So they told me hey, maybe you should get a job in sales. So I went to a dealership on the West Bank. I applied for a job. I got the job, and, of course, you know, I started selling cars, and, of course, I excelled, you know? <laughs> Because at this point, you know, I'm really good at lying, stealing, manipulating people. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it panned out for me. Not addressing the disease of alcoholism or addiction in any way. So um, I get married um, after about six months of being married. I came home from work. My wife had told me that she was pregnant and we were going to have a baby. And, you know, Andy, there's something I've always wanted to do is I always wanted to be a dad. I don't know why that was in me. It was in me for a long, long time that I always really wanted to be a dad. And I remembered the, the day my daughter Melanie was born. I held that little child and you know, I'm looking at her and I, I tell her that, you know, I'm gonna be the best dad you'd ever have. I'm gonna be the best dad that you could ever want. And I meant it at the time. But yet we go home with her and you know, a week later, I'm gone for two days because the alcohol is more important than my wife and my child. So <clears throat> this is how this marriage is going, and it's going for a while. And um, I come home maybe, I don't know, maybe eight months, nine months later from a three, four-day run. And my wife at the time, Annie, says, look, I don't care what you do, but get out this house. If me and this child, we don't need you. You know, and of course, you know, what a nag, what a bitch. So what I did was, I, yeah, okay, deuces, right? And I just went and got a place out in Metairie and, um, you know, I continued to live and, and got another job at another dealership in Metairie, you know, living on my own. 
and still drinking and still partying, you know. In some kind of way, I had managed my wife at the time, who became my ex-wife. I had I had talked her into allowing me to see my daughter every other weekend. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very extremely toxic relationship that we had um, a lot to do with, with my actions, not paying child support, not showing up, and not being a dad. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I mean, it got really, 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 really bad. And, and um, you know, we, I'm doing the best I can. And I remember one weekend that I had my daughter, and um, it was a Saturday night. And, and my daughter went to sleep. I had an apartment out in Metairie, and my daughter went to sleep. It was about 9 o'clock. And, 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 and I, I don't know. I just thought that, you know, I just I wanted to have a drink for some reason. It was 9 o'clock at night. It was early. My daughter was sleeping. And my thinking said, well, there's a bar right on the corner that I could go and have a drink. And I could come back. And nobody in the whole world would know. Right. And I remember thinking that. So, of course, you know, the mental obsession wins out. And, and at this time, I don't know anything about the disease of alcoholism because I have the benefit of step zero at this time. Right. So what happens is I go into that bar and I have a drink and I don't know anything about the phenomenon of craving that they talk about that happens in Frank's body once he has that drink. And. I had another drink and another drink and another drink. And um, and when I got back home the next morning at eight, about eight, eight fifteen the next morning, Andy, my daughter was already up. And when I walked through the door, if you could have seen the terror on that poor child's face. How old is Andy, she? She was two. Hmm. And Andy, it was terrible. Now any normal human being, Andy, takes a look at that. I mean, they really take a look at that. Mm -hmm. that's, some, that's some terrible stuff. And uh, I drop her off at home at 3 o'clock that day, and that very night, I'm back in the bars drinking again. And when you start living like this, man, and you're doing these things, it, things get really twisted. You know, they talk about in the big book where you, you can't differentiate the truth from the false. And I tell a lot of people, you know, I grew up in the Ninth Ward, and I've been in a lot of scary places. But not being able to differentiate the truth from the false is probably the scariest place I've ever been in my life, and I didn't even know it. <laughs> I didn't even know I was in it, yeah. you know, because the delusion is just that bad. So, yeah, like, like you think, like looking back, you go, "What the fuck?" Oh, it's, it's it, how how horrific. Yeah. How I mean, it is just the craziest shit in the world. Some of the things I've done, mm -hmm. you know, robbing a bar and leaving town. Oh my god. Right. So so, um, you know, at this point, I'm just working in life. And, you know, you know, you get into this lifestyle of you go to work, you make and make enough money just so you can go party. And then, you know, you pass out wherever you pass out, you come to wherever you come to. And then you go to work and you make more money. And, and that's just the lifestyle that I had, you know, and. You know, you, you get completely just, just, you completely isolated from everything and everybody, you know, and, and it gets really, it gets sad. It really, really does, man. You know, the alcoholic at the end of their drinking, 
um, it's really, really dark and it's really sad. And I wish I could have told you that I quit drinking after that, but I was, what, I was 30 years old at that time and I didn't quit drinking for 10 more years, Anthony. Mm. I went through another marriage, right? And uh, I mean, that, and had another child. I had my second daughter, Sophia. And, and I wish I could have told you that I was a great dad for her. I mean, very sad. I wasn't even there when my daughter was born. When my daughter was born into this world, I was not there. I was getting loaded. Oh. And I knew my daughter was being born because my mother-in-law at the time had blown up my phone for at least three hours to tell me. But yet, getting loaded was more important. Yeah, you know, um, my wife at the time, prior to her giving birth to my daughter, the last three months of her pregnancy, she was on bed rest in a hospital, Andy, um, just laying in a hospital every day, right? And I might have visited her twice in three months. Wow. Yeah. Right, so that's what kind of husband I am when I drink. Mm -hmm. Right, I, I mean it's, you know, the alcohol. It's it, it becomes everything. So after being married to this woman for a couple of years, um, I'm on a business trip in 2005. I had opened my own business, and I was always I always had the ability to be able to make money. I don't know why that was always a priority in my life. Um, I thought providing financially and materialistically for my wives was the answer. And little I know that that's not the answer today. And um, so I had opened my own business. I was, I was making some money, and I had went on a business trip all in, early in January of 2005. Okay. And when I came back home, uh, my wife had filed for divorce when I was out of town on that business trip. She got an, a lawyer and a judge, and she had a restraining order, and she put a restraining order on me. I couldn't go back to my house, and she had filed for divorce and, um, and put all my stuff in a storage unit on the North Shore. So when I got back to New Orleans, um, this happened, and it was just like, wow, right? And um, so I went and lived in the Landmark Hotel in Metairie, hmm. right? Which, ironically, 10 years later, I was the voice of an AA convention at the same hotel, bro, <laughs> right? I mean, I was just crazy. But nevertheless, I went and lived in that hotel for about three days. And um, I remember the second day in that hotel, <clears throat> I remember waking up that day and I, of course, had just lost my family. I lost my home. I lost everything. I'm living in a hotel. And I remember for the first time in my life, I had told myself that maybe I need to quit drinking. I need to quit drinking. And I told myself the next day when I woke up, I was not going to drink that day. And I remember, I don't know why, but I woke up the next day. And at 10 o'clock that morning, I was so drunk, Andy, that I could not answer the door to the hotel to let the maid in the room. And for some reason, 
it really struck a nerve for me for the first time in my life I really saw that I consciously made a decision not to drink and I drank and later on that day um, what had happened for me was God had opened up a a um, God had opened up a I tell people a window of reality and I was in his hotel room and I walked in the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and for about 10 minutes I really got to see what my life was really about mm. I lost my family no one trusted me you know, at the end, Andy, when I would go to a family function, they would take all the women's purses and they'd lock them up in a room, right? Because Frank's coming, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, how sick and crazy was that, right? Mm. Um, I remember my mom having surgery. She, my mother had brain surgery. She had an aneurysm in her brain, and they did surgery. And the only thing that I could do for my mom doing recovery was go get her prescriptions filled and steal her medicine. That was the only thing I could do for my mom, right? And I'm in this hotel room and all this stuff, I'm just looking at it for what it really was, right? So what happens for a guy like me is <clears throat> suicide becomes a good idea, right? Because I, I'm at the jumping off place they talk about in the big book. I can't live with it and I can't live without it. So what happens is suicide becomes a really good idea for a guy like me. And unfortunately, in that hotel room that day, I was too much of a coward to kill myself. I had enough stuff in that hotel room to where I could have killed myself, Andy. Mm. And I wanted to kill myself, but I couldn't do it. So what I had did was I had called my ex, well, my, my wife at the time. And uh, God bless her. Because now this is a woman for the past eight, nine years of her life, the only thing I did, Andy, was I ripped every ounce of self-worth out of this woman. Every moment of peace God, God gave this lady, I just ripped it from her, right? And here I am, I am, I am at my end, and I call her, and I'm begging her to help me. And she tells me, because we have hospitalization because of her job, not mine, go to River Oaks Hospital. You got hospitalization. They're going to take you. And that's what I did. I got in my car that day, and I drove over to River Oaks Hospital. Now, driving over to River Oaks Hospital, at this time, Andy, I'm very, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. I'm I'm. I want to quit drinking. I want to quit putting all these outside substances in my body. I want to quit. I know I need to quit. I don't know how to quit. Mm. And here I am. Now I got to go to treatment, right? So I don't know anybody in recovery. I don't have any friends in recovery. I don't have any family members in recovery. I don't know anything about recovery. So I'm thinking that my life is over. I mean, I got to go to recovery. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to go to AA meetings, really? <laughs> oh, my God. 
I mean, it's the worst. It couldn't get any worse for me. I mean, there's no way. Now, of course, I was really wrong because of my lack of knowledge and my ignorance, yeah. right? So I, um, I went to treatment for, for, for two weeks. Hmm. And, um, you know, when I was in that treatment facility, you know, I, I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know anything about sponsorship. I didn't know anything about AA, the big book. I didn't know anything about any of that. All I knew was that I, I just wanted to be sober and I didn't want to drink and didn't want to put alcohol in my life anymore, in my body anymore. And that's all I knew. I didn't know how that was going to happen, mm. but that's all I knew. And that's when, the, and so that's like when you got sober. That's that. That's when. That's when I got sober. When I went into to River Oaks Hospital for two weeks. Yeah. From the and landmark. Was, from the landmark hotel. <laughs> to, how long? To, how long did you stay there? Three days. Three oh. days. And 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 it's really crazy, man, because those were three very 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 dangerous days in my life. Mm. You know. There was there was many many times in my life, Andy, as a result of of malnutritious, not eating, you know, the the, the high and the and the drunk and the, and the drink became more important than eating, and I mean lots and lots and lots of times I, as I look back, it, I mean I probably could have died. Hmm. I mean yeah. it could have taken my life. You know, and it does. I mean, it I does. see how many lives it takes. People we know, oh. how many people we know have died. I've seen so many people die in recovery. Imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, I I didn't have to die, and 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 uh, some remarkable. Well, this is what happened. So. So I'll tell you what. Let's take a quick break. Yeah. Cool. And awesome. Then, uh, awesome. Awesome. Let's do that. And then we'll be right back. Thank you. All right, back from break. So, um, where were we? River Oaks Hospital. River Oaks Hospital. January, January two thousand and five. January. So that's like the oh, that's the year. So I'm sure like you're gonna have some like I was really sober and Katrina hit type deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um. So, so I go to River Oaks Hospital. Again, I don't know anything about recovery. I don't know anything about uh, Big Book, AA, NAC. I don't know anything about any of that. All I know is that my ass is on fire and I need to put the fire out, mm. right? So I go to River Oaks and um, I'm there for a couple of weeks. So when I get out, I, I don't know even know where I'm going because I'm homeless at this point, right? I can't go back home because my wife's got a restraining order from a judge that says I can't go back there. And when I was there, my 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 wife at the time had come visited me a couple of times with my daughter. My youngest daughter, she was very she was uh, one and a half years old. And my older sister Debbie had come and seen me. And uh I guess she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself because she offered for me to come live with her when I got out of there, which was really cool because I had, uh, I mean, I really didn't have any other place. Now, in hindsight, you know, I could have went to Oxford House or whatever. But nevertheless, I was there for two weeks, and, um, you know, I didn't know anything about recovery, sponsorship, or nothing. So 
they have a meeting in River Oaks Hospital uh, that we that the patients used to go to, and outsiders used to come in mm-hmm. in the back of, of River Oaks Hospital. Pretty pretty strong meeting, Sundays and Tuesdays and Friday night, and uh, the patients used to sit in the pink chairs, uh-huh. and uh, I remember sitting in the pink chair, and this dude walked up to me. And it was actually two days before I was supposed to get out. And it was a guy that I grew up with in the Ninth Ward, uh-huh. right? His name was Boo. <laughs> and Boo was a thug. I, straight up. B-O-O? Boo was a, B-O-O. Straight thug. <laughs> tattooed from head to toe. Mouth full of gold. His whole top of his mouth was all gold. And I grew up with him. I didn't hang out with him because, I mean, he was a, he was a criminal, yeah. right? And what had happened was, I didn't know, his real name was Gerald. Gerald had gotten sober a year prior. Uh-huh. And he started talking to me that night. And this is what happened, Andy. What happened was, Gerald gave me hope. That's what happened that night. Because he was a lot worse off than me. Ooh. And I was like, damn, if Boo can do it, I know I can do it. And what I really did was when I got back to my room that night, I called my brother and blew his anonymity uh-uh. clean out the water, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know anything about that at this point because I'm sober like, you know, one day. You're like, dude, you'll never get you it. You'll never believe it. <laughs> and uh, the cool thing is, is that I didn't have to ask Gerald to sponsor me. It was just Gerald was going to sponsor me. Yeah. And um, and what happened was, you know, in the beginning it was rough, dude. You know, I, I did go through a divorce. You know, I didn't get the wife back. Mm. I didn't get my company. My company I had ran into the ground. I didn't get the job back. Um, but I was able to stay sober. And from that day, January 23rd of 2005, to this day, which is July 7th of 2019... Um, I've been sober. July 8th. July 8th. Yeah. Hey, got another 24 hours. How do you like that? That speedy recovery. Don't short, don't, don't short sell yourself. No. And, and, and I've been sober and I haven't relapsed yet, you know, and, um, you know, in the beginning it was tough, but what really helped me was, I don't know. I didn't come into recovery and I didn't fight it. I was really desperate. It had to work for me. I had nothing else. Hmm. I had nothing else, dude. Nothing. And what was really cool is when I walked into... At the time, okay, I, um, I, I had my own company even though it was dead. Um, I was back then, dude. I was wearing some really nice threads, bro. Uh, looking fly. I was fly, bro. I'm telling <laughs> you. I mean, I had some really, really nice suits. I mean, I was, I was shopping at Jeff's Haberdashery, which is a really nice men's clothing store. I'd go to Chicago and buy clothes, you know. And I mean, I had the Gators, and I mean, I had it. I mean, uh, I was, man, I, I was, was, I was geared up. You need to show me a picture of you. Do you have yeah, any? Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> So, so I walk into my first meeting of AA on Central Avenue at Solutions Clubhouse. Yeah. They still tease me about this today. I've got about an $1,800 pinch, 
black and white pinstripe Armani suit on. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the gaiters. I've got the cufflinks. I've got the tie. I mean, dude, I look like a million dollars. And you know what I do, Andy? I walk in and I go all the way to the back and sit all the way in the back row because I don't want anybody to see me because I'm judging your outsides by my insides. Yeah. And my outside always had to look really, really good. Popping. Oh, yeah, because the inside was just, it was a wreck. It was yeah. always a train wreck inside. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that weird, though? You're wearing something that they, they can't avoid oh, seeing you, but then oh, you go hide. They, they the look back. at me like, look at this yo-yo, right? I mean, look at me. But let me tell you what happened that day. There was a guy who sat next to me, and he had on these really raggedy blue jean shorts. He had flip-flops on, and he had a T-shirt, right? And he looks over at me, Andy, and he has nerve enough to look at me and say, so what's your deal, right? <laughs> and I look at this dude like, oh, my God. Because at this time, right, I'm better than him. Yeah, of course. Look what I'm wearing, dude. Look at you. But you know what, Andy? He saw right through it all. Yeah. He looked in my eyes. He saw the fear, and he knew I needed help. And he knew that suit wasn't going to help me stay sober. If anything, it was a liability. Mm. And that guy's a friend of mine today. Wow. And what happened was they invited me to lunch, dude. I started going to lunch with these people. And, uh, you know, God started intervening that, right in the beginning, Andy. Since, since you know, the Gerald situation. And, and I remember me starting to meet with, with Boo. And he tells me, little bro, you know, Boo's dead. My name's Gerald. And I started calling him Gerald. And uh, this really cool thing happened, dude. Gerald started meeting with me. And he started taking me through the steps in the big book, out of the big book. And he didn't want anything in return. And that was weird for me, dude, that someone was willing to help me and he didn't want anything in return. Because my whole life, dude, I yeah. mean, <laughs> if I did something for you, I'm going to get mine, right? Yeah. I mean, if I'm not getting mine, deuces, right? Like, did you, like, like just think there was, like, a secret underlying motive that, like, he was going to get you for at the end or something? I didn't know. What, yeah, I didn't know in the beginning, you know? Mm. But but what, I, what, what happened was Gerald had given me hope. Yeah. Because if he could do it, I could do it. Mm. And, uh, and I started working the steps, and I started going to meetings, dude. And, uh, and my life started to get better, dude, you know. And, and I remember, you know, getting involved in the program. I, I was one of these people that really jumped in with boat feet. And I loved it. I mean, I ain't going to lie. I've loved AA since the day I got here, dude. Mm. Andy, AA has given me a life so far and above and beyond I ever fathomed I could live. But more importantly, in the beginning, it explained to me, going through the big book, why I was doing all this crazy shit. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time I got a DWI, and, and, and I had an older sister, Trudy. She had passed away since then, and, and we'll talk about that a little, a little later. But 
I had talked my sister into coming to bail me out of jail, right? So, and my sister was a saint, man. My sister Trudy was so cool. She was so cool, dude. So she comes and bails me out of jail. I'm just starting it. Okay, that's cool. I figure we've gone yeah. about five to ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. So my, I get my sister to come bail me out of jail. So we're leaving Jefferson Parish Jail, and she's bringing me to my car, and she's like, okay, so are you going to your house? She says, no. I said, no. I said, I think I'm just going to go to the bar and have a drink. And she turned her head, and she looked at me. And she's like, Frank, what do you mean you're going to go to the bar and have a drink? And as absurd as that was to her, I thought her looking at me and asking me that was the absurd thing. Yeah. Like, right? Of course. But yeah. that That's was the answer. It's the, yeah, it's the only life you know. It's the only answer I have. Yeah. Everything. Their was alcoholic the only answer. life becomes their only normal. The only normal one, dude. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, you know, I realized after working steps and stuff that alcohol wasn't my problem. Living life on life's terms was my problem, dude. And what happened for me was working the steps out of the big book had did enough to where I had worked enough on my insides to where I had started to learn how to live. I started to learn how to have a relationship with another human being, um, my kids. My kids started to become important in my life, you know. And, you know, early on, my sponsor, he loved me enough, Andy, to tell me the truth. And sometimes, dude, it hurt. It really hurt, bro, you know. Um, and he told me that my actions would speak louder than my words. Man, he used to tell me how full of shit I was so much, bro, right? And I'd want to just punch him in the head, right? Your actions, Frank. Your actions, not your words. So, you know, I, I, started, I started working the steps, you know, and, and I remember um, getting to step two. I had did step one, I believe, going into that treatment facility. I really, I knew I was an alcoholic and my life was unmanageable, of course. Um, so when we got to step two, I remember because it, step two came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I didn't really know what that meant. I thought that maybe that I was just crazy, right? That I was just crazy. And my sponsor had talked me that it is to a certain extent. And what they're talking about is they're talking about the insanity of the first drink. And what he did was he told me that night to go home and to write down 10 of the craziest things that I ever done drunk. And I wrote down 10 really, really crazy uh -huh. things, right? And he said, Frank, believe it or not, the craziest thing that you could ever do today, you're going to do sober. And I'm like, man, what are you talking about, right? And he's like, it's taking the first drink. Mm. Because when you take the first drink, Frank, those are the things you do. And he had told me that if I started building a relationship with this higher power like he did, that higher power would help me not take that first drink. And I started to buy into it because it did it for him. Yeah. So the, from the that day. The artist formerly known as Boo. The, yeah, the criminal, <laughs> dude. I'm talking, listen. So I don't know, maybe about eight months later, him and this dude Rocky that used to run around together in the Ninth Ward, Rocky since this, this disease took Rocky's life. Mm. 
Him and Rocky robbed me and my roommate years ago. Yeah. And uh-huh. he, had, he had made a mention. Of me. I knew who it was. Yeah. They broke in my apartment. They took some stereo, some speakers, and some shit. I don't even remember what it was, but I, it was him. And he, he had made amends to me, right, that he had uh-huh. robbed my bar. But nevertheless, you know, I started working um, steps with Gerald. And then when I got to step three, you know, I remember me being in my apartment. And I remember us getting on our knees and reading the third step prayer, dude. And and I don't know, it did something, bro. Mm. It, it it just did something. And at that point in my life, my life started to get better. My brother was talking to me again. Um, I had gotten a little job to where I could support myself. Um, I, my mom started hanging around with me a little. I was, my family was allowing me to go get my mom, and I was hanging around my mom. I was showing up at my daughter's ball games. We weren't really hanging out, me and my daughter, but I was showing up. And, um, and my life started to get a little better. And then a storm came through New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. So when Hurricane Katrina came, um, a couple of days before, my, a couple of my brothers and sisters called me and told me that they wanted me to take my mom. Well, I had six living brothers and sisters at the time. And I was like, well, why do I have to take mom? Why don't one of you guys take mom, right? And I remember the day before Hurricane Katrina came, I went and picked up my mom and her dog. And my sponsor was in his truck behind me, and we were heading north up Highway 55. I didn't know where we were going. I just knew we were leaving New Orleans. Of course, you know, not knowing what was about to happen. And, uh, and I remember my sponsor told me when, when, when I was supposed to make amends to my mom and to my daughter, because he told me don't rush it in the beginning, he told me that God would make the time. God would make the time, and, and, and the time would be right. And here I am. I'm driving up Highway 55, Andy, and all of a sudden, I know, oh, my God, the time's here. It's time for me to make amends to my mom. Oh, my God. So I immediately start praying, right? And I'm asking God, God, please help me. Please help me, God. Please help me. And, you know, I sat there, Andy, and I, and I had a long talk with my mom. And I told my mom that I wasn't the son that she raised. Because my mom, even though she had her issues, my mom taught me the difference between right and wrong, Andy. I know the difference between right and wrong. And, you know, my sponsor told me, warned me about saying sorry, and I didn't say I was sorry, you know, and I told her if she allowed me from this point forward that I would be the best son that, 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 that she could ever ask for. And those living amends that I had made to my mom from that point till the day my mom died, I tried to fulfill that. But when we were going up Highway 55 and I was making my amends, you know, I, I said, you know, Mom, and when you're out there, Andy, and we're, we're, we're out there and we're doing what we're doing and we're ripping and we're roaring, we never think that we're hurting anybody else. Yeah. And that was my deal. I'm not hurting anybody. Leave me alone. So we're driving up the highway, and I said, you know, Mom, I said, I re- that time that I robbed the bar and I wrecked that car and I had the car towed back to the rectory, and the next day you went to work, I said, man, I bet you were really, really embarrassed, you know. And she looked at me, Andy, and she said, no, Frank. She said, I wasn't embarrassed. She said, 
I was worried because I thought someone was going to call me and tell me my son was dead. And up to that point, that thought never registered in my head <laughs> yeah. because I was so selfish and so centered, right? Mm. I was just worried about me, right? And, uh, man, when she told me that, it was just like, oh, my God. Obviously. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm a parent today, yeah. you know, and I understand that. And, you know, I got to make amends to my mom in that car today, dude. And I remember my mom, before she passed away, I was sober a couple of years ago, and she had dementia and, and Alzheimer's, and her little mind was going, Andy. And I remember I would go pick my mom up, and she would take her hand, and she would put it on the top of my arm, and she would hold my arm when we were walking. And, and it's the, some of the proudest moments of my life. And I would take her to AA meetings, right? And she didn't understand it, but mm. she loved AA because, <laughs> man, look what AA did for her son, yeah. you know? And occasionally I'd ask her, you know, Mom, you doing okay? And she'd say, Son, as long as I'm with you, I'm perfectly fine. Wow. You know, and that's something that AA gave me, yeah. you know? Thank God we don't get what we deserve, you know? And uh, another amends thing that came up later on was when, when I was making amends to my daughter. Um, my daughter, um, um, Melanie, was, was 12 years old when I got sober. And, uh, and, and, and when I got sober, my daughter wasn't very proud of her dad. She really wasn't, you know. And, and I remember one time... Uh, I don't know. I was about about nine months, a year sober, and she was at my apartment, and she was sitting on the couch. And okay, here's the time, right? Oh my God, I gotta make an amends to my daughter. How do you make an amends to a 12 year old child for not being a father? Yeah. I mean, how do you even approach that? Well, that's my, such a like a, a like an, an age where it's like like childhood to, to like teenagehood, where it's like. How do you make an appropriate amends? With like, do you are you doing more harm by telling too much, or like I would imagine that would be hard to figure out. Yeah. You know? So what I did was I had went over it with my sponsor because mm -hmm. he did the same thing. Yeah. So you know I went over it and I told her you know you know dad wasn't you know a very good dad, and if you allow me from this point forward, that I would be the best dad, that 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 you could ever have. And what I told her was, I had told her about what my sponsor had told me, about my actions were gonna speak much louder than my words, yeah. right? And, um, and from that day forward, I was the dad and I became the dad that I always wanted to be, Andy, to my daughter. So my daughter, my belly button birthday is November 18th. And um, a two years ago, on and I go to bed early now. I'm 55 years old, and, and I go to bed early. I go to bed at 8.30 at night, right? I get up early. And I travel with business. And um, two years ago, on November 18th, after I went to bed, my daughter had sent me an email. And on November 19th, I woke up. And, of course, I get up in the morning. I look at my phone. There's an email from my daughter. And I just wanted to read it real quick. And this is the email. It says, Dad, I know your birthday is coming to an end, but I just wanted you to make sure you know how thankful I am to have you and how much I love you. 
As I get older, I continually realize how lucky I am to have a dad like you, and I definitely do not know what I would do without you. Not very many girls can call their dad because they're no, they need to know what shoes to wear, and 20 minutes later, ha call back having a breakdown about an issue in life. But I am certainly one of the lucky few who has a dad I can talk to about anything. Thank you for being a person I look up to and a constant motivation and drive for me to do well in everything I do. I hope one day my kids are able to have the relationship with their dad like I have with you because I certainly value it more than you know. Sorry, buddy. You have and are definitely the person I go to when I need to make an important decision. I know you will always help me the best you can. So really what I'm saying is thanks for being my dad. I couldn't ask for a better one. Humbro. Yeah, man. Humbro. Humbro. A guy like me, dude, right? Thank God we don't get what we deserve. So, you know, I have been able to amend that relationship, dude, you know, and, and me and my daughter. My daughter's getting married at the end of this year, mm -hmm. Andy, and we're going to have a big old New Orleans wedding, oh, right? Yeah. And it's going to cost me a damn fortune, <laughs> right? But you know what, dude? Yeah. I'm okay with it. My daughter's getting married, bro. I'm going to get to be there, yeah. you know. So, you know, what I did was, you know, I, I, I threw myself into the program like I was telling you earlier, man. And I got to, I got to know a lot of people in, in, in recovery, dude. And that's my life today. Recovery's yeah. my life. You know, Andy, I, I tell a lot of people, you know, I, I travel with business all over the United States. And I get to meet a lot of people. And everybody knows that I'm in recovery. I don't hide it. It's who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm proud that I'm in recovery, dude. I get to live this wonderful life because of recovery. And I ask a lot of people, I say, you know, what is your passion? What do you love to do? And it's sad, Andy, because not very many people know or get to do or even have an inkling of what their yeah. passion in life is. I've never had a chance to contemplate it. So... Of course, Andy's been on my boat before, and we've slayed some trout on my boat before. Yeah, slayed trout. Slayed them, right? <laughs> and that's what I love doing. I love fishing. I love my wife and my two daughters, Andy, and I love AA. Those three things. And, Andy, I get to do those things a lot. <laughs> a lot, you know? And uh, recovery's just been awesome for me, you know? I get to sponsor guys today, Andy, and I get them to take I get them to take through take them through the big book. You know, me and Andy have a mutual friend, Kyle, and I get to sponsor Kyle and just to see Kyle's life today. Yeah, I amazing. mean, this is a dude that was homeless, living at Bridge House in New Orleans. Now he's bought a house. He's gotten married. He's got a really good job working at a plant, right? And just to see the just all the wonderful things that's happened in this guy's life because yeah. of recovery. It's just awesome, you know? But I will say, Andy, we'll say, Andy, you know, life still shows up in recovery though. Mm -hmm. You know? I've had some things that happen in recovery. You know, my mother passed away in recovery. My sister Trudy died in recovery, you know. Trudy's your older sister? My oldest sister, you know. You. Something really cool happened with, I'd like to share with you. Um, so I was about three years sober, and my sister came down with cancer. And, um, and I remember at the end, Andy, um, we knew that, that my sister didn't have much more time to, to, to live. And... Um, I had at that time had built a pretty cool relationship with the higher power. Mm 
And my brothers and sisters wanted me to talk to my sister about God. I'm like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Right? Me? <laughs> and I got to have that conversation with my sister. And I was there when my sister took her last breath. And for most people, when someone dies, and it was sad that I lost my sister, but Andy, it was one of the most beautiful things I had ever experienced in my life because I knew without a doubt, without a doubt, that my sister Trudy was going to heaven. Mm -hmm. And that's where she was. And when my sister died, I got to go help plan my sister's funeral with my family. I participated in that, right? And I remember, I remember at my sister's funeral, my family had gotten there first. We all went and we made our, you know, we went and got to see my sister and they, they had opened up the room for the public to see. And, and when they opened up the door, there was a bunch of people standing to the right that my family didn't know. And my brothers and sisters like, hey, who's all those people over there? And it was my home group. Mm-hmm. AA showed up, bro, right? And no matter what's happened in my life, AA has always showed up in my life, Andy, no matter what, mm-hmm. you know? Um, about three years sober, um, I was sitting outside the clubhouse on Solutions. And by that time, Andy, I had worked the steps. I was really involved in a program. And a really cool thing had happened. I had built some relationships with some women in AA. Like, I had women friends, real friends. And it wasn't sexual in any way. I mean, they were friends of mine. And I remember this lady walked up on the porch, and she was new, and she didn't have a sponsor. And I remember being able to give this lady someone's phone number, a lady in AA that was doing the deal, right? And it was really cool. Her name was Laura. About a year later, I started dating that lady, Laura. We were together for about, we were together for about 10 years. And last February, um, what happened was I was on a business trip. Life shows up, Andy. And all of a sudden, I had a pain in my side. And I was in North Carolina, in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. I was actually at one of Michael Jordan's dealerships. He has, a, of course, all kinds of business adventures. Yeah. But he has a Nissan store up there and um, that, who's one of my clients. And I was up there on a Thursday night. I had gotten a lot of pain in one of my side, and I had to go to the hospital at night. And I went to the hospital, and they did a uh, scan, and they thought it was a kidney stone. And an hour later after, they, they came back in, and it wasn't a kidney stone. And Andy, I had a tumor, a cancer tumor inside of my left kidney about the size of a football. Now, up to that point, didn't know. I mean, it football. Was just football. Out of the blue, Andy. Just hit me out of the blue. Had no pain up before that moment. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and it really rocked my world. And uh, so the cool thing was is that, um, you know, I had a really good relationship with my sponsor. I had changed sponsors uh, years ago. 
Matt was my sponsor now, who I love and I talk to every day. And uh, I called Matt. I immediately flew home that day. I came home to New Orleans. And uh, I went to Ashna Hospital and talked to a doctor. And they set up surgery in about four days. And um, me and Laura had been living together for about 10 years. And, and I loved Laura. And I wanted to spend the rest of my life with Laura. I don't know why I was really scared of getting married again. I had been married twice prior. But what happened was, is when I got home and we started talking about this cancer thing, Laura said something and it really resonated with me. She said, Frank, no matter what, we are gonna be okay. And she said that, Andy, I don't know, it just really just hit home with me. And I knew at that point that I was gonna marry this woman. A couple of days went by and I woke up one day and I said, listen, we can go get married today. You know, I knew, I knew. And we went and got married. Wow. And uh, yeah, <laughs> dude, and, and she's, she's the love of my life, you know. And she's awesome and she's been great with my kids. And you know, it's just been, it's just been an incredible thing. But you know, life shows up, you know. And again, you know, I, I had surgery, and I was mean. I had major surgery. They I mean they they cut me from the top of my chest all the way to the bottom of my my belly because they had to look inside my abdomen. And thank God, you know, they took the the, the tumor out, and I still have cancer. And I take this chemo every day, and I'm okay. I'm perfectly fine. But AA showed up again. They had people from AA cooking dinner for me and my wife every day. Wow bringing meetings to my house, if I needed to go to the doctor, whatever I needed, AA was there, you know. And that's the way it's been since I've been sober. You know, I live, Andy, I live an incredible life, an incredible life, you know. Um, I do have to continue doing what the program tells me to do. You know, every once in a while, I get this great thought that maybe I might have it now, you know, and I'll quit doing or slack up on what the program, you know, is, is suggested for me to do. And what happens is my selfishness and my self-centeredness takes over, dude. And of course, you know, there's an ass whipping. It's coming, mm -hmm. you know, and it could be the way I act out to one of my children, the way I act out to my wife, to the company that I work for. You know, I've worked for the same company for 10 years. I'm an asset to the company I work for today, mm. you know. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier about you going fishing with me. I love to go fishing. I love to mm. fish, Andy. So, because I don't spend all my money on getting loaded anymore, you know, I've been able to save money, and I was able to buy a camp down in South Louisiana, and I have a nice little place down there. It's not Taj Mahal, but it's a really nice little place. Yeah. And I have a boat. And I have a really nice boat. And I get to go fishing. Your passion. My passion. I love to fish. And one of my things is, and I don't need anybody to tell me anything different, is that if I take God's children fishing, and I love taking people fishing. I take a lot of people fishing, Andy. I love taking people fishing. <laughs> There's nothing like putting people in the middle of a school of trout and just let them reel it. I yeah. mean, it's, 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 that was it's, a, such an incredible oh experience. My God. Oh my it's, God. It was just like, boom, 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 boom. boom. That's what it's all about. 
And I love watching people go through that. Yeah. And I get to share that, you know, with people, you know. And, um, you know, again, I've been able to build this wonderful relationship with this higher power. And I know without a doubt that there is a God today. Mm. And I have a prayer life today. And, uh, you know, it's very, very unselfish as a result of good sponsorship and, and the program of AA. And, uh, you know, the the relationships I have today, Andy, is priceless, man. Right. You know, I have some really, I have some true friends in my life today. Again, you know, I love recovery. I yeah. love it, you know, and, and I wouldn't change anything, anything in the world, yeah. you know. So, you know, if you're out there and you're listening to this yo-yo now, right now speaking, you know, if there's anything that I could leave you with, I would leave you with that what this is really about is this is about hope. That's what this was about for me. Mm. It was about hope, Andy. And prior to January 23rd of 2005, I had no hope. I had none. Yeah. It was hopeless. And my God is so powerful that he could take all the terrible things that I did and use them as an asset to give another human being hope, wow. you know, and um, and there is a solution. Yeah. It does work. It does work. I'm living proof that it works. You know, I've been sober for 14 years now, and it's been 14 wonderful years, Andy. You know, I've gotten to build a wonderful relationship with you. You know, one of the cool dudes. Just in case, I don't know if I don't know if you guys know, but Andy is this young dude, okay, that that went to Bridge House, which is really a homeless shelter, right? I mean, when you you go to Bridge House, believe I'm so thankful that God didn't have me go to Bridge House. I definitely don't want to go back because I don't. Yeah, right. I don't know if I could have made it through Bridge House, but you made it through Bridge House. Yeah, and you do what the program suggests you to do, and now, I mean. You know, you're an entrepreneur. You have your own business. Uh-huh. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. This, this yo-yo has his own <laughs> I, business, guys. It's crazy. Yo-yo right? is about right. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I'll be honest. I'm sitting in his business right now, and today's the first time that I've ever come to his business. And I told him, I said, man, I'm actually impressed because it really is a nice place. Yeah. I mean, it really <laughs> looks like a business. You I've know? had a lot of help, man. That's for sure. Yeah, right, if right. That's it. I, it it's funny. It's, 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 a, it's um, like you don't get sober alone, and you find out that you don't have to do anything else alone either. Man, what a good point you just brought up, Andy. Yeah. You know, one of my greatest assets in life today is AA for this reason, Andy. Mm-hmm. No matter what I go through in life, the cancer thing, the death of my mother, the death of my sister, um, anything would work. Anything I need to go through, there's somebody in AA that's been through it. Yeah. And I can, I can pull off their experience. Yeah. And there's the blessing. That's it. You know, I don't have to be alone anymore. So, you know, I really thank you for allowing me to come do this with you today, buddy. Dude. You know, what a blessing, dude. What a blessing to have you, Brad. And I thank you for coming. It's a, it's always an honor when people agree to do this because it's such a, like, weird thing, you know. But uh, Well, it's just like anything in AA. You know, I'm, uh, Andy, I'm still a very, very selfish and self-centered person. And whenever... 
AA asked me or recovery asked me to do something. I try to say yes because that's what my sponsor has told me to do. And after I say yes, of course, I regret it a lot. And on the way there, I'm like, man, why do I have I, on the way here today? I called somebody. I'm like, man, why do I really need to go do this? I don't want to go do this. And then after I do it, right, I'm yeah, like. It's always the case. Okay, God. Yeah. I got you, bro. Definitely. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So thank you for, uh, for allowing me to be here, man. I love you, bro. Oh, I love you too, man. Thank you. Oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man.